So within biblical bounds, not man's pretended wisdom, man's uh, desires to live solely uh, by his own independent conscience, but within biblical bounds, we must separate from all that is against God and be joined to all that is of the Lord. And looking at the idea of separatism, uh, there is both a definitive aspect as well as a progressive aspect. By definitive, I mean that there is a definite, once-in-a-lifetime break with the old and an allegiance to the new. That, of course, is our new birth, being born again in Christ, repenting of your sin, putting your faith in Christ, being a born-again believer. As such, you are definitively separate from the world, from the old man. Jesus died on the cross. He took the penalty for our sins in thought and word and in deed. That is true of every blood-bought believer. And it is essential. I don't want to presume anything uh, for all those gathered here today. But let me state it again. It is essential for the second phase, uh, the progressive aspect. It's essential that we have this foundational aspect of the definitive break with the old man, with the world that so easily ensnares us. But yet... Having had that definitive break, there still are those temptations. There still is the life, the vestige of the old uh, poking its way. Uh, those sticky fingers uh, reaching out into our near new life. So, yet, the old is definitive. There is still the ongoing need for a progressive, uh, daily building of new habits of godliness as we turn our backs on that which was old, and look forward in faith to that which is new in Christ. A few scriptures to quote here together with you. There is a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is where we are headed. We work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, right? There is actual effort that we do. Not in and of ourselves, of course, because it is God who works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. So having made that definitive separation, we then progressively make further separation as God works in us to work out this sanctification. So by that, as introduction, we're going to look at this with the overall intention then of understanding what it means for Paul to be separate to the gospel of God, and in that, looking at the meaning of the word, Old and New Testament here briefly, and then Paul's various separations leading finally and if you already looked ahead in your outlines, there's nothing here to hide. <laughs> Looking finally with some applications, what does it mean for us to be separate? Definitively, I've covered and I'll repeat again, but also progressively. Some ideas maybe, how can we apply this idea of progressive sanctification, separation to our lives? So first then, uh, the word separated, aphorizo. Etymologically, it comes from two words, uh, from and boundary or limit. So the idea of being away from that boundary. Somebody, something, spiritually speaking, it's God, right? He makes the rules, has set this limit, and aphorizo is to be away from it. So there's a distance between the two, a separation. And note that it could be a good boundary uh, that is uh, wrong for us to be away from, so we need to be closer to that defining line, or it could be a, a danger line that we need to be away from. So whatever the context, uh, it is something marked that is away from. That's the separation. Looking at a few New Testament usages uh, to help illuminate this for us, and there are many, so I'm just going to cite a few. 
One is Matthew 25, 32. It's Jesus speaking. He said, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate, that's our word, he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides, it's the same word, his sheep from the goats. So, Aphoriso appears there twice. The nations will be separated one from another, which is just as the shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. So the key point, how our word is used here, there's a distinguishing, right? There's noticing there's something different here. They're not the same. They're being distinguished, followed by a separation based on that distinguishing. Another example, Acts 13.2, quoting, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So note that Barnabas and Saul are being separated from the group of Christians for a special work. Not that the whole group of Christians was polluted or tainted or inherently bad, and therefore these two good samples, Barnabas and Saul, needed to be removed from that, but rather God was just making a mark. There's a difference here. It was a difference of calling. Not that the one was bad and the other was good, but that there was a difference. And because of that difference, there was a moving apart, a separation. So again, common threads in the usage of our word here is a distinguishing of one thing from another and then a separating, a a physical, in this example, because they're going off to new lands to preach, a physical moving apart one from the other. And then in Acts 19.9, quote, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, He departed from them and withdrew, that's our word, separated the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So, note this uh, active step is on the part of Paul. He's in Ephesus. Uh, The synagogue people were criticizing the way people, so Paul withdrew. He separated the Christians, those willing to at least hear, from the non-Christians, those who wanted to hear no more. So again, a distinguishing, a separating based on a difference. The distance was, are they willing to hear more or not? Are they eager to hear of Christ or not? And with that separate, that distinguishing, there was a separation. One more example to look at. And I'm going to read a little longer section here, so you might want to turn with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. verses verse 16. Let's actually back up to verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and I'll read all the way through the first verse of chapter 7. So 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and following. It's a passage of recognizing. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the focal issue here is an improper togetherness, right? It's wrong that they had joined together this unequal yoking. Instead, there needed to be a separation. 
And the examples that Paul listed are a bunch of them. Two animals are yoked together when they're matched and can accomplish a common task, right? That's a proper uniting. But righteousness and lawlessness can't be matched. They can't have fellowship together. Light and darkness can't be matched. They are not to have communion together. Christ and Belial aren't matched. They are not to have accord together. On and on he goes. A believer and an unbeliever are not to be matched. So therefore the Christian is not to be married with, to not have part with the non-Christian. And then the temple of God cannot be matched with idols. There is no agreement there. Thus, so it comes all the way to the therefore at the beginning of uh, verse 17 and also uh, 7, 1. The therefore leads to the conclusion, separate. Because these things aren't matched, something must be done. We don't just sit back and say, well, it's too bad they don't match. Let's try and change something so they can match. No, Paul is saying some of these things just inherently aren't matched. Because they're not matched, there needs to be a separation. And it's issued by way of a command. You people must separate. And I'll come back later to some particulars of that separation as I alluded to some points of application. But let us have it settled in our minds now. The why of separation. Why is it God has us separate in some ways? Why is it that Paul encourages his readers, his listeners, to have some separation? It's because there's a difference. These differences are inherent in some ways and incompatible. Therefore, there must be separation. Two unmatched things ought not to be put together. They must be separated. So they're distinguished and then separated based on this mismatching. So with that, by way of some New Testament context, let's look very briefly at the Old Testament parallel. As I put there in your outlines, the uh, parallel word in the Old Testament, Hebrew parash, and those are some examples you can follow up on later, and I encourage you to do so, just to check me. But briefly, let me cite for you some of those Old Testament passages. Uh, this is what is translated in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, as aphorizo. For example, Genesis 2.10. Uh, it's the river of Eden that was parted, we could say separated, divided uh, into four river heads. And in Genesis 10.5, uh, the coastland peoples were separated according to their languages, families, and nations. Uh, interestingly, at uh, Joshua 21, we see kind of a conceptual uh, implementation of this word. It's translated into, at least the New King James English, as common land. Uh, thus, the separated place, so to speak, is the area around a city marked off as associated with the city, but it still is outside of a boundary. It's not the city proper. So I think you can see that the Old Testament usage follows along with what I've been explaining from the New Testament. There's some kind of difference because of that difference, there's a clear separation, often a physical, at least a functional, in some way, separation. So all that noted together, Old Testament, New Testament examples, just to summarize, to be separated is to be distinguished from and away from the other. Uh, on the surface of it, by the plain meaning of the word, separation does not, and just say this by way of a caution, it does not inherently assign a negative value to the thing that one is moving away from. It's just a difference. Like Paul and Barnabas with those other Christians. Not those other Christians were bad, but they were different. God had a different direction for their lives. Though often it is a bad versus good distinguishing. But at least at the base, basic level, inherently there's not a value being placed. There's just a difference 
being stated and the necessary implication, the requirement for separation. It's crucial then to know, of course, what is the proper norm, right? If we don't know what the boundaries are, how do we know what the separation principle is? If the usual way of things is wrong and is itself a deviation from what the Lord would have us to do and be, well, we must deviate from that standard, right? The world sets up all kinds of standards and tells us to conform. But if it's a wrong standard being put forward, we need to separate towards what God has. But if the normal way of things we see is right, it's a healthy expression of what the Lord would require of us, we must adhere to that standard and separate ourselves from other allurements, other false standards that are being put out there. So I hope you see, it's not always as easy as it might appear. We need to understand what is the mark, the dividing line, and then what is God's call to separate from that or move towards something else. So coming back to that illustration of the English Reformation and that long list, and I only gave you part of it, of the separatist groups, many of them going too far, they separated themselves from proper biblical uh, regulated principles of the sacraments, of church government, and other issues. So while the Church of England had many troubles, uh, many of the separatist groups introduced their own troubles. They were separating from godliness and good practice into their own little niche things. God's word alone is the standard that we must adhere to in all things, in faith and in life. So, with that said, let us come to the second main section of Paul's, what I've worded as several separations. Uh, Because as I've outlined, uh, there are different ways in which the word is used. There's the definitive, there's the progressive. So let us look at how the word is used to describe a few separating events or separated aspects of Paul's life before we look at how we are to be separate. The first, then, is, as I've titled it there, uh, 2A, separated from his mother's womb. So he was separated, really, at birth. And this is from Galatians 1. Quote, it pleased God, and this is Paul speaking, telling his story, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So the end result of this separation is the preaching, but that came much later, right? This is at his birth, decades later, that the actual effect of the separation comes. But note that this definitive separation, well, really, God's decree of separation, uh, came at his birth from the womb. A second example is in uh, Acts 9, and we see how God's decree, his decision from the womb, is working its way out in history. So he was separated to that service to the Gentiles. didn't start when he was a week old. It happened many years later. So it was years until he actually engaged in it. So this predictive separation unto Gentile ministry is recorded in Acts 9, spoken to Ananias by Jesus. And one note, the word aphorizo does not appear in this passage, but I'm citing it as an example of how Jesus following on uh, Paul's insight from his birth, shows God working out this decree in history. So it's kind of an aphorizo concept, even though the word aphorizo is not in this text. Reading for you, Acts 9.15. The Lord said to him, saying to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So that choosing, which is God's 
saving grace of election, right? Pulling one man out of a group. And that sending, the word go there, is how God, Jesus here speaking, affected that aphorizo principle, that separation. But then further, how this worked its way out in history, point C in Acts 13. It was in Acts 13, with the progress of Revelation, that we see the actual separation to this official work of missions among the Gentiles. I read this verse earlier, but to say it again, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Two things to draw your attention to here. First, the Holy Spirit directed this, right? Earlier it was Jesus speaking. So let us understand, this is a Trinitarian concept, right? We don't have one person in the Trinity of the Godhead working against the others, but working in concert to achieve his eternal desires. Jesus having spoken earlier, and here the Holy Spirit working it out. And second, uh, based on the verb tenses in this passage, we're to understand that the separation was a momentary, a distinct event. Whereas the work they were called to, that ministry among the Gentiles, was ongoing, reflecting the current state of things from their vantage uh, of the speaker. So in Antioch, at that moment, they separated these men to that service by fasting, praying, laying on of hands. And then Saul and Barnabas continued on with that ministry for years to come. But then I want to come to what I've termed Paul's specific separation. And of course, that is the subject of Romans chapter 1, his introduction So he had uh, other separations really leading to this. All the separations I've spoken of uh, thus far are prior to this. So here he is, writing a letter to the Romans, not having met them face to face yet, very much desiring to do so, laying out his case for who he is, why he's writing to them, what he hopes to tell them, when he does, Lord willing, come to see them. And so in this introduction, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So what is this specific separation that he's speaking of here in verse 1 of this um, high point of epistolary canon that we read in the New Testament? Because from one perspective, Paul's whole life was marked off, right? His whole life was separated unto the Lord. Yet, as we've seen at a specific time, he was marked off for labors among the Gentiles. And his life calling here, then, is put under the heading of the gospel of God. And Lord willing, next time I'm back with you, we will look at that next clause in order to complete verse 1. So he says, I'm separated to the gospel of God. But for today, before I don't want to eat too much into those important things we'll, Lord willing, talk about next time. But today I want to focus on that separation. Separated from something to another thing. And I believe a wordplay uh, is being employed here. Because remember, at times where Paul gives his biographical testimony, he notes that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Right? He was trained very thoroughly in the precepts of that religious sect who, God's providence, not a, no small irony, uh, became a significant opposing force to his ministry. But they are the Pharisees. 
That name, Pharisee, is related to the word we're looking at here. They were the separatists. They were you know, one of those little niche groups, though a very main one, uh, like in the times, well, actually I shouldn't liken them to the English Reformation, because let us grant uh, grace, according to God's knowledge, he knows which of the English separatists were actually saved, but the Pharisees were not, right? You fundamentally reject Christ, no matter all the other strengths you have of personal habits, you're not saved, you're not in God's favor, and that's the situation for the Pharisees. So the Pharisees drew all sorts of limits, and were separated from the less thoroughgoing Jews of their day, they sought to do it right through all manner of habits and exercises and such, observing all these little nuances and some big details. Yet sadly, even if they happened to adhere to the correct things, like say they were really strong on refraining from work on the Sabbath, that's great. But having rejected Christ as the Messiah, it doesn't matter how diligently you observe the Sabbath. You're not pleasing God. You are not saved. So these separatists, the Pharisees, had in fact separated themselves from God. Isn't that the irony? These thorough religionists were so separate that they had separated themselves from God. They did not please God and in fact were opposed to him. Remember, friends, what is not of faith is sin. For without faith it is impossible to please God. Those religious separatists, the Pharisees, thought they were pleasing God with all this religious observance. They did not have faith in Jesus. Nothing they did was in faith. Nothing they did truly pleased God. That's the irony that. That in seeking to separate themselves from what they saw as wrong, they had, in fact, separated themselves from the Lord, from the Messiah, from his people, the way, the church, and the wordplay is clever. It points to the fact that Paul was separated from those separated ones, right? God, in his divine act, had separated him from the people who had, according to their own human actions, done the separating. So which is more important? God's separation or the traditions of men's separation? The answer is obvious. God's separation. So in general, God was separated from the world with all its affections and endeavors. Other people tried to imitate that in some ways, but he had the authentic because God was working in him. But I do want to draw your attention to the point that Paul's separation, and in general this word separation, is not just an anti. As again, we're against this and against this and against this, and let me make a list of all the things I don't like and I don't do. Rather, there's a positive to it. Think of it this way. And I know it's a bit of a kind of word battle, say, within the pro-life movement. I actually kind of gave it away there, right? Are we anti-abortion or are we pro-life? You see that there, yes, is an anti. We're anti-death. We're anti-child murder. But we are, a much higher principle, pro-life, pro-family, and those other things. Or to take you to a political discussion in the 1980s, are we anti-communist or are we you know, pro-democracy? Um, such as that exists. Uh, so think of it both as a the things we are against as well as the things we are for. Paul definitely was an anti-Pharisee, but he was, more importantly, pro-gospel. And a lesson for us, not to get drugged down in the little nitpicky things that others bring against us as if we've got to bring a counter-argument to everything they say. Say, no, 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 no. You can get distracted by that. You run out of ammunition as you're firing bullets at every little stray cat. But rather, what are we for? You're for God. You're for the gospel. You're for his word. You're for his church. 
And so let us live it out in the positive also. So it's at this point I want to suggest some things for us to ponder as we seek to be biblical separatists, right? So lots of people are separatists of different flavors, but we want to be biblical separatists. And remember what I said at the beginning, cited there in your outlines, within biblical bounds, we must separate from all that is against God and be joined to all that is of the Lord. And uh, there's two facets to that that are necessarily connected. I think of it like a marriage. You're familiar with the verse that teaches about leaving and cleaving. The husband must first leave his old familial bonds in order to cleave to his wife and become one flesh. So he leaves one relationship in order to establish a new one. So as you ponder God's word, and this is really my proposition to you, is with a humble heart, ask God, what can you teach me? What am I maybe not seeing? Or maybe I see something, but I've been weak in the flesh in terms of acting on it. But Lord, teach me. Show me the particular situations that I'm in and help me to be mindful of that biblical separation that I might leave the ways of the world, that I might cleave to God and to please him in every way. So, with that said, let me uh, propose to you some things. Uh, very common, I didn't sit down and think of this list, having seen glaring problems within St. John's Church here in Lincoln, but rather uh, the temptations that are common to man in our era. So one thing to propose. Uh, how do we spend our time? How do you as an individual, as a family, maybe even as a congregation, spend your spare time? And to ask the question, is there a biblical separation? Or does your time look a lot like the world? When you've got a spare hour, what do you do with that hour? When you've got a spare 30 seconds, what do you do with that spare time? Uh, there might be some similarities. They're not all inherently bad. But what do you do? Uh, are you purposeful with it? Are you exercising that spare time in faith? When you might go to an ice cream shop. Nothing inherently wrong with that. Which one? Uh, you watch a movie. Which movie? Those are the questions to ask, to try to tease out, according to God's word, what is the biblical separation here for my spare time? And that brings us even, speaking of movies, to media choices in general, to ask yourself, Lord, is there a biblical separation in my media choices? Or does your media choice look like the world's? Uh, could it be the world like the world's in that it merely pursues style and sort of flash and dash, right, pleasing the senses? Or it could look like the world's in that it copies the latest fads and popular trends. But properly, in faith, we want to ask ourselves, does the world uh, creep in to my media choices? Uh, I think the proper principles here, as we try to measure that according to God's word, is purity, nobility, justice, and loveliness. And also, are we exercising caution about evil? This is where that positive and negative comes in. So positively, are we embracing purity in our media choices? Nobility, justice, and loveliness are the things we look at, the things that are pleasing to us, the things we put up in our homes, the songs we listen to. Are they pure, noble, just, and lovely? But in terms of the negative, being against the negative, I want to ask you, are we exercising caution about evil? And that can include, I'm just not going to study that thing. That's kind of nasty. Maybe it's good to know about it, but I'm not going to go study it because it will affect my mind. It's not good for my children to learn about the Greek philosophers because the Greek philosophers are lost. What do they have to teach the world, right? So we're just not going to look into that. Be simple concerning evil is what God's word teaches us. Or even 
regarding clothing and hairstyles. Is there a biblical separation? Do we follow fads of our un- and anti-Christian culture? And here I want to emphasize liberty. If God hasn't definitively said something, then we have liberty to do it, right? Let us not be too bogged down with people's opinions if they can't prove it from Scripture. Though I believe there are some important things regarding this topic that are in Scripture. The key principle being modesty. I think there's two facets to the issue of modesty. One, as scripture uses it, is in terms of covering the right amount of skin, right? Some things just aren't to be seen. A passage in 1 Corinthians 12, the unpresentable parts have greater modesty. That's to be kept covered. And second, modesty in terms of moderation, so non-excess, modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, that is to say, not elaborateness or ostentation. So consider that, our clothing and hairstyles. Uh, second to last one to propose to you. When it comes to our work, right, we have to pay the bills. We can't all go off to the desert and be monks. That wouldn't be a good thing even if we could. So when it comes to our jobs, uh, financial uh, capacity where we earn money to provide for our families and to give to worthwhile causes, do we pursue a job out of the same motivations as the world? Like, What's the top, top five list that the average non-Christian uses to say, should I take this job? Are we using the same evaluative criteria? because it has a good vacation package, (laughs) because I have a a corner office with my name on the door, right? Are those the things we really should be looking at? And vacation time isn't necessarily bad. Again, we need to measure. What are we doing with our spare time? Uh, Or do we keep a job uh, because it's in an industry that's popular? Or uh, rather, and this is one principle I'd I'd encourage you to look at, is it because I'm called to it? Has God really gifted me for this? And I have a way to give back to God what he's given to me uh, through this employment. Uh, we, yes, should <clears throat> work for uh, remuneration. Indeed, to not work hard and get paid and provide for your family is itself a sin. 1 Timothy 5.8. But just like prayer, it's necessary to be done, but it can be done wrongly. Right? We must pray. But if we pray ostentatiously, like those fellows on the street corner trying to attract all that attention... Uh, that James condemns, that's not a profitable thing. So to work is necessary, but it can be directed wrongly. So friends, do our labors serve us in terms of our pride, or does it serve our bosses? Uh, Does it ultimately serve the Lord? And then one more, maybe a bigger even topic, is Lord's Day activities. Uh, Think of that. Is there a biblical separation? Or do we spend our spare time on Sunday Mostly, as the world does. And I put mostly there because, obviously, speaking to you, uh, you are already somewhat separate from the world because you're here. <laughs> you know, the world is sitting in front of the TV or sleeping until noon or going to a sporting event on Sunday morning. So that's not you. And praise the Lord. Uh, it's a privilege to gather with you to praise the Lord on this Lord's day. But what about the remainder of the day? Well, you're here for two or three hours total with con- drive time. Uh, But what about the remainder of the day? And I purposely put this as a separate point from the leisure activities application that I spoke of earlier. And that's because, properly speaking, the Lord's Day is not a leisure day, right? It's a non-work day, but it's not a leisure day as we would commonly think of it. And that's made clear, and I'll read for you here real quickly, Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, right, so... Sunday's not a pleasure day. You're not supposed to do your pleasure on the holy day. If you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, 
nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's a beautiful promise he gives to us. If we set aside all those leisure things, those things are fun, not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but just not appropriate uh, to the Lord's day. So we take this to be a command that relates to the Christian Sabbath. And what is truly remarkable, I think, is that he has our best interests at heart. Right? He's not penalizing us. He's not cutting out all the fun stuff and making us then sit there and, oh, I wish I could be doing other things today. But as we do this, as we focus on that which is of the Lord, hearing his words, speaking his words, he says, I will feed you. He will cause us to ride high. That is to just be caught up into his presence. What greater joy could there be than that, right? He is meeting our every need. So I would just encourage you to consider uh, the issue of recreational pursuits, uh, buying and selling, so engaging in commerce uh, on the Lord's Day. That includes shopping. Um, and see how that fits uh, with the Lord's directions for the Christian Sabbath. Because doing our own pleasure is exactly what the world does on their day off, right? And ultimately, the Lord gives them no rest. They have no peace. They have an emptiness because they're always striving, always trying to satisfy themselves. And they never get there. Whereas God's ways are different. When we give it up, he gives it back and oh so much more abundantly in Christ Jesus. So to wrap up these applications, uh, recall that I placed these under the heading of Paul's separation. This was the life that Paul sought to live before the face of God. And it's the life he challenged other believers to live as new creatures in Christ. At this point, let me emphasize, this is the life that Paul challenged his friends to live as new creatures in Christ. I don't want you just to appropriate this little five-step to-do list and say, now I'm going to please God. Because if you aren't already a new creature in Christ, you, you can't put icing on a burnt cake, right? It's still not going to be tasty. The cake at its foundation must be made anew. That's that definitive separation. And with that definitive separation, we build on that foundation, which is Christ, and these steps of sanctification. So let's get first things first. Well, with the, to, uh, by way of conclusion, I'll leave the applications at that. And may the Lord give us grace to be Bereans. I want you to check me, not just take my word for it, not just take the creeds and confessions of the church for it, uh, but read through these scriptures. Because remember that Bereans were commended for two things for receiving the word with all readiness. And I discern that the reason you're here is you want to receive God's word. So praise God for that. You are readily receiving it. And second, the Bereans were praised, commended, for searching the scriptures to search these things out, to check them. And I trust you'll do that and do the same day by day as we seek to. That's the key thing I want to leave you with, to be aligned with God and his ways. In contrast, with the world and its fancy, passing fancies, right? Be aligned with God and separated from the world. And I do trust the Lord will be faithful to complete this good work in you. It's a good work. Uh, it's a difficult work. Uh, impossible. It's so difficult. It's impossible aside from God's grace. But as an eminently important work, it must happen in each and every one of us where there are dire consequences. Because remember, this is quoting from James 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That's a very significant parting line. Friendship with the world is on this side 
enmity with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if God's on this side, are we his enemy? Are we friends with the world? Or are we separating ourselves and having been separated from the world to be a friend of God? That's the challenge posed there. So let me leave you with one more comforting statement I gave in, as a passing glance earlier, 2 Corinthians 7.1. I believe aptly sums this up. One of those therefores. Therefore, having these promises, that's the promise of separation, beloved, can you sense Paul's heart of love towards his listeners? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the promises referred to are God's premises. They are, uh, sorry, his uh, presence, <clears throat> his separation from the world, his coming to God, a promise of personal relationship with God as Father. So while the world is a dirty place, our God is in the business of cleaning things up, right? He wants our bodies and souls not to be little whitewashed things made to look pretty by a little bit of human ornamentation, rather truly cleansed, clean vessels for him to work through. So if you're justified, he is your God. He has definitively made you holy. And as you are being sanctified, you are his sons and daughters, becoming more and more actually holy. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the testimony of Paul here as he could look back on his attempts to be separate, attempts to please his neighbors and recognize the emptiness of it, that all that was a distraction and actually more than so, it had led him away from you. But in showing uh, his own life that ultimately was empty before Christ, it magnifies you, O God, your mercy to draw men to you, uh, your mercy in strengthening us in faith, your mercy, mercy in saving us from sin and setting us on a course of righteousness, your daily mercy in giving us grace to do acts of righteousness, growing in grace, becoming more and more like our Savior. So I pray that even today uh, we would appropriate your grace to do this, that you would give us wisdom as we examine the scriptures and what this looks like in our day and age, and give us grace to have faith to trust you in the days ahead. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.